we started a conversation, if you're just kind of getting here, we started a conversation last week, and really the, the whole idea of the conversation was to talk about uh, what it means to, to, take, uh, to take seriously the design and the calling that God gave the church. And so that sounds a little bit inwardly focused, but not when it's done right, not when it's done in the Jesus way. So instead of talking about the church and saying, okay, like, I guess we're just going to focus inwardly. Instead, when we learn what God actually designed and what Jesus initiated the church to be, all of a sudden we find that, that when we learn it the right way, it becomes an incredible, incredible blessing to the rest of the world and to each of us in our own, in our own growth. Um, what I really wanted to do uh, was, I think, what do we call this series? Built Up, a church that looks like Jesus. What I really wanted to do was call it Bodybuilding with Jesus. Um, but I wasn't sure that, that, that everybody would, like, get my humor. I was joking around with some of our, our team, our leadership team, that, like, you know, this image of Jesus broke bread as if ripping a phone book. Um, you know, but, but uh, yeah, so the whole, the whole idea that stirred this um, is the idea that when we work together, Ephesians 4, Paul's writing to the church, and he's saying that when people utilize their gifts, they actually work together as the body of Christ to become something that looks like the maturity of Jesus in, in Jesus' fullness, because none of us can get to Jesus' fullness on our own, okay? Uh, but, but here's the thing. Here's why we need to talk about this, because when we have different personalities and different priorities and different gifts, it creates, I'll put it on the whiteboard, it creates tension, right? We know a little bit about tension in this country um, because what ends up happening is somebody has a certain personality type and somebody says, this seems to be really important. And then somebody else says, no, that's not important. This is important. And so what we end up doing, and this happens in the church all the time, we end up doing a tug of war between priorities, okay? Where, where the ribbon's in the middle and we're both pulling against each other with the intent of pulling somebody over to our side to understand, to get it the right way. Now, granted, there are plenty of things that we need to talk seriously about sharing convictions on as we follow Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking mostly about personality types and learning what the right priorities are as we follow Jesus. But what we have to do is we have to move away from the tug-of-war attitude with one another, and we have to move toward a different kind of attention, attention that actually creates movement. So if you think of a tug of war as one of the most common ways that we, that we think about holding um, unique personalities, giftings, uh, priorities, and, and you switch that out and you start to begin to think of it as springs on a trampoline, it's a completely different image, yeah? So when you think about a, a trampoline, what you get is you get this, you get this world where Everybody is holding springs, and there's tension there, no doubt. This is impressive. Look at this. This is like exactly like a trampoline looks. For those of you that are new, my mother is a professional artist. And we just, we don't know what happened. Uh, so anyways, the, the, we are in the midst of learning as a church what it looks like to let tension in the right ways, pull each other toward movement in the middle. 
toward a church where we don't have big giant blind spots because we have different people asking really important questions. And God has actually created a church to do just that. So we look at a passage last week, <clears throat> and we will be keying off of this for three weeks, uh, like Ephesians 4, when, um, when Paul is writing to the church and he says, listen, each of us has been given, given gifts from Christ, each of us. And then he says, so, one of these, so some of these gifts, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and, um, and in the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the end goal is that as a community, we would truly represent the maturity of Christ by each using different gifts. And so these five, these five gifts have often been called uh, uh, the five-fold ministry. And what we've often done is two, two mistakes that we've made. Number one, we've said this is just a few people. So let's outsource the, the influence of the church to a, like this, this must just be the ones who are like supposed to be the paid leaders. <clears throat> so that's one thing that we've done that's a problem because that's not what the early church functioned as. And number two is we've elevated the last two on the list, the pastors and the teachers, way above everybody else. Okay? And so what we've done, and we're actually talking about the first three today a little bit more, is we've driven out <laughs> the types that we often call the pioneering types within the church. They get frustrated because of how they're wired and they are like, Yo, we need to keep doing stuff. We need to keep moving, not just, not just developing and settling things, which are really important. But anyways, so we're going to look at that today. And like I said, we rarely do this sort of a thing because the Bible is not always um, what we call prescriptive. So, so we don't always look at the scriptures and say, well, Paul said these five, so that must be everybody is this five, boom, 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 and, and you know, this is true for all time and in all ways, regardless of cultural context, everything like that. The Bible is very dynamic and needs to be interpreted as such, as God's working in an inspired way through all of the course of, of this, this history that it holds. However, from both personal experience and from looking at the world, what we see is actually that when the church is functioning well, almost all of us, I would actually say all of us, actually do fit into one of these categories in certain ways, in the ways that we're drawn to do. And so we're going to redefine the language for you. Because for some of you, to, to imagine, um, what does it mean to be an apostle is either something that uh, happened a very, very long time ago or something that I am super uncomfortable with right now. This is my friend, Apostle Dwayne. You know, like for many of us, that now some, some of you might come from that culture where that wasn't an unhealthy thing. For many of us, that, that brings up certain red flags because we've seen things um, we've seen power and influence not used in the most responsible Christ-like manner. So we're going to blow this whole thing out of the water and reconsider the way to look at something like this. So, um, all right. Uh, let's see. By the way, you know, you know the, church, the church thrived so much in the first 300 years, it took over half of the Roman Empire while it was still illegal to be a Christian. And one of the reasons that it took over half of the empire was two things. Number one, the leader of the movement had already been killed, and that didn't work, right? Because Jesus resurrected and kind of defeated death. But the second thing was because of what Jesus did, the church understood itself with such a broad view of leadership that you couldn't take out the leaders anymore. 
Anybody that would get taken out, 10 more leaders would pop up because of the understanding that the church was this thing where all hands were on deck. Everybody had gifts to use, and everybody had the Spirit of Christ in them now, which was uniquely different than what we see in the Old Testament. Okay, here we go. Everybody using their gifts, leading the movement, um, makes it impossible to stop. Okay, okay. Um, Many years ago, when my, they're not here, uh, my sons, who turned 13 in a month, uh, my twin sons, when, when they were about five, I think it was like two years being here at, in Delaware, uh, and we were just getting the church kind of started and organized, and I spent a lot of time, we were meeting on Sunday nights at the time, so I spent a lot of time traveling to other churches and being a guest, a guest teacher and, and preacher and stuff like that. Um, it helped create opportunities for us to have more prayer partners and all sorts of things. Um, but, uh, but anyways... We had been talking, you know, our church would meet in pavilions and we'd meet in backyards and we'd meet in living rooms and do all this kind of stuff. So my, ch- my kids actually didn't grow up with the church building being a concept, even though they were part of that until they were like two or three. Um, and we still don't have a church building, although we do have a neighborhood now. A spear is our neighborhood, um, but we don't have a building that we own. But, but we look a little bit more like a typical maybe um, church in many ways now. However... My son was trying to tell me something when he was like five or six about something that happened earlier uh, that month, and it was at a, it was a place, and he said, you know, at, 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 uh, the, at the church, and I said, you mean at our church? And he said, no, no, at the church that doesn't walk. And I, and I, was, I was like, what are you talking about? And then I realized that, and this is not, this is not a passive, like, passing judgment on a, on a building, but his understanding was, we went to that church when Daddy spoke, but our church is people, and our church moves, because we move from one place to another, and I started every gathering by saying, you don't go to church, you are the church. We, our, our church is, you know, going for a hike, our church is doing this, our church is doing that. So he said, the church that doesn't walk, meaning that, that other church, and so by impl- implication, Life Path was a church that walks, a church that moves. And, and that stuck with me. I've written about that, I think, once before, but that, that image has stuck with me for the last decade. Um, and and it's, it's really interesting to embody this idea of a church that goes, a church that actually does things, goes, goes to new places, is willing to be a dynamic presence in the world, um, a church that is actively out there moving. And the gifts that we're talking about today are all about what we might call pioneering. They're all about uh, the outward calling of the church. So next week we'll talk a bit more about the gifts that help us develop and be formed in deeper ways. Um, but today is about this pioneering identity. And so, uh, so like I said, our goal is to look to a passage like Ephesians 4 and look to the example of Jesus and say, all right, so how can we if the church is designed to have these various wirings, these various gifts given so that we can be built up into the fullness, what does it look like to reclaim some of the things that we've totally distanced ourselves from a little bit and, and maybe aren't super comfortable with, like the apostolic, the prophetic, and the evangelistic attitudes? Here we go. All right, so uh, we're going to explore those and hop right in. Apostolic is the first thing that we're going to look at. And um, the, the word apostle literally means sent one, okay? So, so to say that someone was an apostle in the scriptures meant that they were sent out, okay? They were, they were sent to do something new. 
um, to, to start new things. So obviously, our most famous one is the Apostle Paul. Oh, there's a lot of ghosting on this whiteboard today. Not great. Going to have to fix that. Um, so the Apostle Paul was sent out in many different ways to many different people. He began new churches, all this kind of thing. But, but the, the heart of an apostle, the heart of an apostle is to look out and to not just, not just be sent, but uh, here's what we'll do. It's, uh, how about this? Oh boy, here comes art again. Um, All right, the apostle is to see where God is moving and to have the courage to go and lead us into it. So the apostolic spirit is almost one of the entrepreneurs. You know those people out there in the world who just always have new ideas, who always want to start something new, who always have kind of a vision for something that hasn't yet taken place. These are the ones who have this unique wiring for an apostolic thing, the ones, the ones who say, you know, have we ever tried this? Or, you know, I, I feel like God is, God is stirring us to do something over, over here. Um, or why haven't we ever blank? They, they love to upset the status quo. And by upsetting the status quo, what I mean is that they love to upset the church. Right? Because it's very, very difficult, especially when you're like, it's not broken, to have somebody say, hey, let's start something new. Let's go and live out God's love in this neighborhood in a new way. Have we thought about what it looks like to serve this community because they're really under-resourced, you know? Um, it was apostolic ideas that led us to get involved here at Aspira and to learn um, to be a support system for so many of these families and teachers in whatever ways that we can. It was apostolic ideas for us to get involved with Family Promise that cares for homeless families in Newcastle County. It was, it was apostolic ideas for someone to say, hey, I'd like to start a new, a new meal community um, specifically for uh, people whose schedules might not work during a typical week, so we're going to meet right here at Aspira after, after Sunday, even though we've always done it in houses. Instead, we're going to recreate something new, maybe. Let's explore it. Let's dream. Let's, let's risk a little bit. That's the apostolic impulse, okay? So, <clears throat> so the apostle is one who has vision and courage, sent to do new things. What's next? To envision what hasn't been and chase after it. Uh, Jesus embodied the apostolic in really clear and obvious ways, right? You know, uh, our, our most maybe well-known passage in the scriptures is about God sending his son, right? The idea of a sentness that Jesus came to do something new, to be something new, to be God in the flesh embodied, to, to reveal God's heart in a new way and call people to a new way of understanding God, to a new way of relating to God, and to a new way of relating to each other, honestly, and the world. Um, and so in, in Luke 4, after Jesus is, uh, comes out of the desert and he gives his first public words in the Gospel of Luke, what he says is, is the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's reading from Isaiah 61. And he says, one of the things, he says, God has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Sent me. So there's this idea of sentness that's a part of, of Jesus. But the interesting thing is, uh, is that after the resurrection, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus sees his disciples again in John 20, one of our favorite passages because it's so central, one of the things that Jesus does is the post-resurrected Jesus gathers his disciples together 
Well, they're already gathered together. He joins them through a wall, by the way, but that's a whole different topic um, about post-resurrected body of Jesus and how unique and interesting it is, which probably has implications for what it means for us to be the body of Christ. Not like walking through walls, but metaphorically in some other way. Anyways, Jesus looks at them and he, he speaks words of peace. And then he says this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So the impulse, the prophetic, or I'm sorry, the apostolic impulse of being sent out is one that is continued from Father to Son to Church through the Spirit. Okay? This is the movement of God. Father sends the Son, the Son empowers the Church with the Spirit and sends them out. And so, so there's so much beauty here in seeing this. Jesus was sent to bless the world, and we are sent by Jesus in the same way. So therefore, God's kingdom is this kind of never-ending process of, of sending one another out to be agents of love and reconciliation, all right? And, and in our meal communities, which just launched last week and are happening again today, later today, um, in our meal communities, one of the questions that we often uh, invite you to reflect on is, how are you being sent by Jesus? How are, you how are you being shaped by Jesus right now? And how are you being sent? The core questions of discipleship. Where's Jesus speaking to you? Where's Jesus changing you? And where's Jesus sending you? Because we are a sent people. Now, some people are going to be wired for that more than others, where it comes more easily. And we need you. We need you to lead us, to give us great ideas. By the way, some of your ideas aren't going to be that great. And so part of your job is to discern which are the good ideas and which are the God. Actually, you're allowed to just toss them out. The role of the church is to decide which are good ideas and which are God's ideas. It's not all up to you. That's the beauty of this. So good, so beautiful. So for us to create a healthy environment, for those of you who may be wired in the apostolic way, here's what needs to happen. We gotta give each other permission to risk and fail, first of all. We have to give each other permission where we can do new things and it is okay if we fall on our face as we try to love well, as we try to pursue Jesus, as we try to reach out, whatever. Like, it's okay to fail. Secondly, we've got to give each other freedom to think outside the box and upset the status quo, all right? Comfort is like one of the church's greatest downfalls because we just like things the way they are, you know? We often have asked the question of what might God be doing embedded, embedding a church like ours in a school like this with both the cultural realities and the needs, and then God giving us so many of you wonderful people who speak Spanish, either as your primary or as your um, secondary language that you became fluent in. I mean, it's, it's so funny. I think we have, what, like four people that lead worship regularly? Ben was up here this morning leading us, and he's one of the, one of the few that actually doesn't speak Spanish fluently, and he was leading us, uh, as well as Brenda, today so wonderfully in uh, in in expressing ourselves in the beauty and vastness of God's cultural color. So anyways, uh, what, what might it be for us to keep making space for new questions? And we have to understand that when things are even good, there are going to be some people who just get itchy. And that's great. And we have to say, it's okay if you get itchy feet to try something new. Like, we welcome those ideas, those, those questions. Um, and we understand that's part of who you are, and it's good for us as a community. But all of us are called and created in some way to live out this attitude of sentness, knowing that we can live freely because the tomb is empty and there is grace 
and we have all of life forever ahead of us, and we can live with open hands and open hearts and a willingness to risk because we have nothing to lose. <sighs> so, your worth isn't tied to what you accomplish, in other words. So it's okay to be a little bit risky. Um, and uh, so, so, oh, here, here's the big question. I should have written this down. I'm just going to say it like two or three times real quick. The question that the apostolic folks ask the church, this is important, is are people being awakened to what God's doing next? That's the question or something along those lines. So they're always saying, hey, do we have eyes on what God might be stirring next? Are we, are we awake to that? Are we alert to that? And we need people in the church to ask us those questions so that we don't become complacent uh, or miss out on what, what God might be desiring. Okay, that's possible. Prophetic. Let's talk about the next one. Um, I think this one's great. Prophetic people and, and, and the gifts of, of a prophet are uniquely wired um, as people who have a sensitivity. Are you going to get this one? Let's see. Oh, this one's hard. I'm going to have to put it on a face. All right. I don't know how to draw ears without a face. Okay. So. They are uniquely wired to be able to hear God's voice, right? To hear what God is, is speaking. And, and, and because of such, they have an incredible heart for integrity. And in the scriptures, this comes out in two primary ways. Integrity for authentic worship and prayer. And integrity for caring for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. That is the role of the prophets. Okay, just read them in the Old Testament. But here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, so, so this, this priority of turning back to God in honest love and being people of true justice. In, in the Old Testament, the prophets were a direct mouthpiece of God, right? Thus says the Lord is one of the kind of overall um, most numerous statements that's repeated, most repeated statements in the scripture. But here's what, what's interesting that happens. Um, they would give words of kind of divine judgment or divine deliverance for disobedience or, or obedience, and they were expected to speak perfectly or else they were a false prophet. And it's not good if you are labeled a false prophet in the Old Testament. It does not end well for you. Okay, so this is what the prophetic experience was in the Old Testament. Direct mouthpiece for God, very strong words often of judgment, and, um, and uh, expected to, to speak perfectly, to get it right or dire consequences. So here's what happens. This is so cool. Jesus changes this, all right? And here's how Jesus changes this. First, <clears throat> Jesus is, excuse me, <clears throat> Jesus is the purest of all of the prophets, right? He, he heard the voice of the Father. He spoke about it frequently. He proclaimed it in a way that people said, no one can know the things that you know and speak like the, like the way that you do. He said, I, I'm not speaking on my own. I am speaking the words that I hear from the Father. So, so this idea of hearing God's voice, Jesus was, was literally one with God and therefore the perfect, the perfect hearer of God's voice. Um, he calls people back to authentic worship when the temple had become corrupted by greed, right? 
supposed to be a house of prayer. You're missing it. He, he challenged, uh, specifically challenged the religious leaders and, and others who had corrupted the integrity of faith, but also mistreated the poor over and over, right? He was an agent for justice and compassion. He spoke of God's heart for the poor and their importance in God's kingdom, and he called out the lack of care that people had for the poor and the, pressed, um, and the, poor and the oppressed among them. All right? But then something interesting happens. Jesus dies, and the curtain in the temple at the most holy place is torn in two. And this is the place where God's spirit was to have understand, understood to, to be dwelling in. So that the symbolic nature of a temple curtain torn is that God's spirit is now in, unleashed on the world. That's what we're supposed to see happening when the temple curtain gets torn. That no longer is, is the spirit of God somehow... Um, located in just a time or a place or available to certain people, okay? And so, so that's what happens. And then after the resurrection, remember what we just looked. Jesus looks at his disciples and he breathes on them and he says, receive my spirit, right? So all of a sudden, the spirit of God is given to all who follow Jesus, all right? Unleashed on the world and everybody can have the potential to hear God's voice now in a new way, not just a select few, all right? And so the understandings and the expectations of the prophets really change in the New Testament. Here's something really cool, and we're not going to dive into this whole passage about the nature of worship, but when Paul is instructing the church in Corinth about the nature of worship, he mentions the prophets among them. And here's what he says, and note the differences. Two or three prophets should speak during the gatherings, people hearing the word of God, and others should weigh carefully what is said. You see the shift here. You might get it wrong, but that's why we have a community. Because the Spirit can speak to all of us. So that we expect that some people might have a sensitivity to what God is saying and what God is whispering and what God is calling us to. But they're to be tested in the context of community. So they hold that with humility. And the rest of the community says, we want to hear what you're saying and let's discern if God's actually behind this or if it was just a neat idea, you know? And so, so there's, there's newfound freedom, right? So now the prophets confirm what God is saying through relationship, not independently. And now they're focused not on judgment, but on grace. We're told that they have the, the purpose of encouragement and building up the body. That's, that's what the prophetic role in the New Testament looks like. To build up the body and to encourage and spur them on toward integrity. Uh, and their words are, are weighed and tested instead of simply being labeled a false prophet if they get something wrong. Um, so, so this role becomes exceedingly beautiful, but also an opportunity for more people to be able to hear and respond. So, so the prophetic question for the church is literally, are people hearing and responding to God's voice? And, and, and like I said, most often, those are the ones saying, are we worshiping in truth and honesty and authenticity? Are we truly understanding God's love for us? And are we truly understanding and caring for those people who are being mistreated out there? Because God's heart is for the poor. Over and over and over we see this stuff. Um, so are we hearing God's voice and responding? So the first one, are we, are we awakened to what God's doing next? And the second one, are, are, we, are we hearing God's voice and responding to it? Okay. And then... Um, Oh, oh, creating the right environment. Here we go. Um, some of you have, have, we've got to update our language. Because some of you, like I mentioned earlier, have experienced a lot of ugliness. I'll just say ugliness. Sometimes it looks like abuse. Sometimes it looks like other things. But a lot of ugliness that 
that here's the thing. You've seen people use God spoke to me as a weapon against others. And I, I literally I just saw five of you nod. And so you've seen this used as a power play. So we have to update our language because for many of you, if you actually did hear God speak, you wouldn't share it anyways. You wouldn't want to share it because you've seen, yeah, I don't want to be arrogant, and you've seen it done poorly and everything like that. So when we create the right culture, we understand that it's not our job to figure things out, but it's our job to offer what we're hearing to one another and that God takes that and does something really beautiful with it, okay? And so, so um, the, the dream is that we actually would say, hey, you know what, I've been sensing this from, maybe from God. Would you pray about it and see if, if you're hearing the same thing? Or I have an idea, and maybe, maybe it's, it's God. Or, or I just, if anyone needs to hear this, I don't know. It's, it's up to you. It's not up to me to figure out, but I have this thing to offer. I did not grow up in any type of charismatic background. But I've had moments where, with humility, other people have heard a unique encouragement from God and shared it with me, but in a humble way. And say, hey, I just had this image. I was thinking about you, and, and I don't know if it's helpful. You'll get it. You'll get it. If it is, if it's not, that's fine. And oh my goodness, I was able to receive it because it was brought with humility. And it was profoundly encouraging to me. So, so we have to be willing to kind of take risks here and, and, and step out if we hear God's voice and, not, and, uh, and do it with humility. Okay. Um, and also, people wired in this way are a little bit zany. They're super passionate often, um, and, and, and sometimes they're a little much for people. So we have to understand that these, these types of wirings are... We, we've got to make space for it because sometimes if somebody, and by the way, some of you that are artists, you tend to fall into these categories a lot because you use art and imagery to reveal truth. And so um, we have to make space for each other and be like, yeah, it's okay that you're odd because you're only odd to me and I'm odd to you. And so the idea of oddness doesn't exist anyways. Okay. All right, let's keep moving. Um, evangelistic overview. Okay. Evangelistic overview. Do you know anyone who, once they go out to dinner, love telling everybody about where they went and what dish they had because it was so great and you all have to try it now? Right? They're posting pictures. They're sending a text message. They're saying, oh my gosh, have you been to this restaurant? You've got to go here and here's the exact thing that you have to buy and I know it's going to be great because I loved it and you're going to too. And I mean, sometimes you could be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go there, but I appreciate your recommendation. But other times it's like, oh, that's great. I'll try that recipe or I'll try that movie. I'll go see that because it's great. And some people just love sharing good news. They are, it's contagious. They experience something and they want others to know about it. And they're great at telling the story. Evangelists are people that God has wired to live out good news through proclamation and through storytelling and through demonstration with their lives. All right? So, so I'm going to... I'm going to write with, uh, let's see, I'm going to put a mouth here, make him happy, oh man, he's becoming terrifying, Uh, oh my gosh, you're going to have nightmares, Um, if you want a really terrifying thing. Uh, look at what the kids' life, kids' face, body thing ends up looking like today. Bethany showed me this morning, and that is far scarier than anything that, that you're going to see today. And I'm serious. It's terrifying. It's this, it's like, that is not a, 
that is not a child of God. <laughs> like everything is, there's just, yeah, there's not a person, even, there's not a person in the world that looks quite like, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can ask your kids. Okay, I think I probably just got myself in trouble there uh, in so many ways. All right, let's talk about this, this good newsing. Okay, literally, evangelist, the word comes from euangelion. The English word translated is gospel. Gospel is good news, right? So, so the good news, according to John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, is, is what we have with us. And so what that means is we receive an entire story when we receive the good news. People who are wired evangelistically love helping people take the next step in their experience of good news, okay? Jesus was um, this incredible proclaimer and demonstrator of good news. He noticed... Um, he, he proclaimed a lot, but his life was a demonstration of a story that was worth living, okay? Uh, so, so the idea of an evangelist is somebody who loves to draw others in and say, come join me, come join me, come experience this with, with me. But their, their, their body, their, their life lines up with the words that they have and the words that they're telling. Um, Jesus lived out his proclamations. He ate with tax collectors he didn't just say people mattered, right? He touched lepers. He fed hungry crowds. He healed the sick. He empowered the marginalized. He proclaimed the good news of God's grace and forgiveness. The story was told and the story was lived. And of course, he lived out the ultimate expression of love, the giving of his own life. And the story was so good that it drew a lot of new people to it. Now, there's another story um, that I'm just going to give a quick overview. It's in Acts 16, and Paul and Silas are in jail. And Paul was, was maybe, outside of Jesus, best ever at, at living out an incredible story. And so Paul and Silas are in jail because of preaching the, the good news. And what ends up happening is there's an earthquake that we don't really know where it came from, but we're, we assume it's intended to free them from jail. But the, the ground shakes as they're, here's the first thing, in jail they are singing and praying. And everybody else is listening to them because they're like, that's odd. That's a different kind of story than I'm used to, all right? And so anyways, in the midst of prayer, in the midst of, of, of praising God, uh, there's this giant earthquake and all of the doors fly open. And the jailer knows how this story ends. And the jailer knows that this story ends in shame and punishment. And so the jailer is about to kill himself because he knows that he can't overpower all of the, the prisoners. There's too many, the doors are too open, I, like, there, this does not end well. This story ends with my defeat in some way, and so I'd rather kill myself right now. And so in the midst of that moment, the jailer's about to kill himself, and Paul says, hold on, we're all still here, we're not going anywhere, your life matters. Paul says, we'll stay in jail if that's going to save your life. Don't do this, don't worry, we'll listen to you. And in that moment, the jailer realizes that there is a better story out there than one that he has ever lived. And his response is literally, gentlemen, what do I have to do to be saved? Because they've been singing about the rescue of God. And they tell him, and they, they invite him to follow Jesus, and he trusts Jesus, and he gets baptized, and, and he, he invites them over to his house, and he serves them dinner. And all of a sudden, he starts to live the better story that he heard earlier. The story of hope, the story of compassion, the story of community. You see, you see what happens? This is what a gifted evangelist is so good at, inviting people into a better story that is centered on Jesus. 
and the hope that God has for the world. And so, so we need people who love to proclaim and live out the good news and invite people into that. The evangelistic question for the church is, are people hearing good news and responding to it? Are we embodying good news? Do people hear it? Are they getting it? Are they responding? So, it's, it's possible to be immature in all of these, okay? It's possible any time that we seek to live out these, these priorities or the ways maybe that God has wired us, it's very possible to, to get it wrong and to be immature. So, so here's, um, here's where we can practice immaturity in these kind of um, pioneering gifts. Uh, number one is the assumption that every idea, every stirring, or every impulse must be from God without community discernment. That is not the way of Jesus or the way of the New Testament. That leads to arrogance and it leads to wounding others, okay? Second is the idea that the outward expressions are the only things that matter in the church. That the only things that matter is that we're out there doing great stuff instead of the fact that Jesus also prioritized what's being formed within us and how we are being transformed and changed by the Spirit of God, becoming more like the character of Christ within our hearts and caring for one another within the church. Sometimes they say the only thing that matters is out there. Unfortunately, most of the time the church has been on the opposite side, where the only thing that matters is in here. But sometimes these types can say, you know, we don't need relationships. <laughs> we don't need friendships. You know, we just need to go out there. But, but we do. We're not intended to do any of this alone. Um, and that's really the third, one of the third pitfalls, that we don't need others. You just go out and get things done on our own. And, and those um, who are, are wired to develop and to support get overlooked sometimes. Really, all this stuff is just about the need for humility as we live out the calling to go and, and be people of movement. Um, so the calling is to be a church that is willing to move when Jesus stirs us to move. That means that we are a people who are willing to take risks. That means that we are a people willing to see where God is calling us to love boldly and to step out in new directions, to break into places of the world that desperately, desperately need the love of God and to do something about it, to live out a better story. Okay? Um, I, uh, I want to end with a, a story that is not mine. Um, it's from, a, uh, it's from um, a guy who was influential in my life um, for many years through his writing. Uh, his name's Tony Campolo. I don't know if you've ever heard of his name. Uh, he came from Philadelphia, huge proponent as, um, as a, a Christian for caring for the poor, but also a huge passion for um, the kingdom in all of its fullness. And, uh, and he tells a story about how he was at a conference in Honolulu, and I'm gonna let him tell the final four minutes of it. But he was at a conference in Honolulu, and because of where you're at, he was, he's a sociologist as well. So he's a sociologist and a, pa and a, a pastor. Um, and uh, let's see, let's see if it comes. I may need you in a second, Melanie, because I lost my connection. Um, so he's, he's in Honolulu, and he's waking up in the middle of the night, obviously, right? So he's waking up in the middle of the night, and um, he's hungry at 3 o'clock in the morning. So he walks down, tries to find a diner that's open, only finds one place down this little alleyway. And he walks in, and he's having, it's like this greasy spoon diner, and he's eating. And in the midst of that, in walk uh, three prostitutes, okay? And they're chatting with each other. And one of them mentions that tomorrow's her birthday. And, and the other one looks at her and kind of sneers and says, what do you want me to do, bake you a cake? And she says, why you got to be always putting me down? I'm just never had a party before. 
I was just saying that it's my birthday, that's all. And he hears this, and he gets this idea. So they leave, and he talks to the owners, and he says, she come here a lot? And he says, every single night. He says, okay, tomorrow night, we're going to throw a birthday party for her here. Okay? Um, and, uh, and so this is the story of what happened in that moment. All right? And I'm, I'm playing it here because there aren't really kids, and there's a little, a little mild language, but um, I believe that you can handle it. Um, and so just go ahead and listen into this story for three or four minutes. Strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walks through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And We started singing, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake, and finally he said, All right, Agnes, knock it off. <laughs> blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried, and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, Now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, Is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, What I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence. The whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her, I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Campolo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I thought that was a clever answer. I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning?
I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Do you hear me? It's always good to end a message with a better preacher than you are. Man, that guy. And he's still going, too, 20 years after that. Um, yeah, just, I, I want to remind you that sometimes stories like Tony's can feel a bit out of reach. But for us to be a church that's willing to move, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look always like really wild storytelling moments. It looks like the little moments of being bold enough just to say, hey, can I pray for you? Or, hey, I was thinking about you the other day, and I just felt like God was stirring me to just ask, how are you doing? Whatever this might look like, right, uh, of saying, hey, I don't even know how to do it, but I think God's calling us to, to do something more for the kids here at Aspira that have to live under the poverty line. You know, like, what, what does it look like to just be willing to put ourselves out there and say, hey, what if we do a little more movement? Where might God be doing something? So don't be afraid of it, all right?